Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we're now in December, we are making our way through the final few weeks of the year that really matter for the markets. It was an everything rally in November, and as we got into this final stretch and look into 2024, the question is, where do markets go from here? So joining us on this Monday morning to talk about that is Jason Dreho, head of asset allocation for the American with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, good morning. Welcome back. Thank you for dropping by top of the morning and looking forward to hearing your thinking today. Good morning, Dan. Happy Monday. Yeah, certainly a lot to talk about after an eventful November in the market. So with that, Jason, maybe a good starting point. Why are people saying it was an everything rally in November? Well, it was pretty impressive uh, when you look across the board. You know, So the S&P 500 is now, as of Friday's close, at a year-to-date high, uh, and the 10-year Treasury yield was down 60 basis points in November. And those are the kind of the, you know, summarized in some way what happened in the month. So let's just take the S&P 500. Uh, It was up in November 8.9%. That was the seventh best one-month return for the S&P this century. So out of 527 months, it was the seventh best. If we go to U.S. government bonds and look at a broad index of U.S. government bonds, basically treasuries, uh, its total return was 3.44% for the month. That was the third best monthly return since 1989, uh, roughly almost 800 months, the third best month. Uh, and then investment grade corporate bonds were up nearly 6%. Uh, that was the second best month in 38 years since 1985. So whether we're looking at equities or fixed income, it was uh, you know, almost not the best or very close to the best month in, in decades which meant that a 60-40 stock bond portfolio had one of its best months in the past 30 years. It depends exactly how it's comprised in terms of equities and fixed income. The only thing that that was down for the month was oil, about 7%. But all told, it was very much a sort of November to remember for financial markets. So, Jason, I do want to highlight that in your recent blog, Making a List, which is a nice nod to the holiday season, you do identify a number of factors that matter for the market outlook. So can you take a few moments to go through some of those items on that list? Well, after this phenomenal performance in November, of course, the question is, you know, know, what comes next? And so I tried to go through and itemize the different possible factors that were going to cause the markets to go higher, grind higher and tighter. Uh, or reverse. And some of them are fundamental, some of them more technical. On the fundamental side, you know, the first one is the consumer. Uh, and the question is, will consumer spending continue to hold up? Uh, thus far for the data that we have in, in this earnings season, or sorry, this um, holiday season, it appears that consumer spending is, is holding up relative to, you know, kind of reduced or modest expectations for the season coming into it. That's in terms of retail goods. But consumer spending on goods is only a third of all spending Two-thirds is on services, and we saw like record travel over the Thanksgiving long weekend. So services spending it hold up. So overall, the consumer seems to be doing you know, fine and not at, at a point of, sort of imminent rolling over. So that's one factor. A second factor is the labor market, you know, which is cooling but doesn't appear to be cracking. Uh, initial jobless claims that come out every Thursday are still running in the low 200,000s. And the November payrolls report that we will get on Friday, the consensus is for 180,000 new jobs. So another you know, solid jobs report. Um, we are seeing signs of certainly moderation, continuing claims, which is kind of a proxy for the amount of time people are unemployed. That is rising. It's taking longer for people to find jobs. So there's definitely some softening in the labor market. 
but fears of it sort of a nonlinear acceleration to the downside, that doesn't seem to be at all imminent. Um, the third macro factor is disinflation or, or inflation falling. It seems to be moving steadily. Last week we got for October uh, PCE data, which is what the Fed cares most about. And core PC, you know, the really thing that the Fed cares most about is down to three and a half percent. But if we look at the last six months, that core PC over that six months, if you annualize it, it comes down to two and a half percent. So real time inflation is getting actually pretty close to the Fed target. And you're looking ahead, it's quite likely that, you know, disinflation could almost accelerate more so than inflation being sticky. So what we have overall is macro conditions that look right now to be relatively benign, you know, for, you know, they have been and they will likely to continue at least for the next couple of months. Um, if we then turn to investor position, that's another key focus. Uh, certainly there's a tailwind in November of investors kind of adding risk uh, across, you know, different risk you know, type of investors, especially systematic strategies that are more kind of rules-based. So as volatility falls, as market momentum picks up, they're going to like that exposure. Uh, hedge funds looks like they add a little bit of risk in retail. We're in modest buyers for the month, but that tailwind may abate because December tends to be the the worst month of the year in terms of retail flows as investors kind of you know, shut it down for the year, look for the new year to, to start buying. Uh, so business was a bit of a tailwind. That's probably petered out. The notable change on that front is the sentiment shift in the last month. Um, the AAI bull bears investor survey comes out every week. The number of bears in that survey over the past four weeks has basically collapsed. Um, the four-week decline is the second biggest decline in the past 20 years. Uh, and now we're at a level of bears in the market that are pretty much as low as it's gotten over the past 20 years. It doesn't mean sentiment is very bullish or uber bullish. It's suddenly moved more bullish. But really what, what's happened is that market bears have, have really kind of collapsed. Um, and that's consistent with the VIX volatility index dropping to, to 12.5. Basically, it's lowest level since the pandemic began. So the investor sentiment position indicates that investors become quite comfortable with the macro environment that I laid out. They see little near-term near downside risks, and that's one of the reasons why volatility has got lower. So as a factor to watch, I'd say it's neither you know, neutral nor positive, but that's notable like how much the, the sentiment has shifted over the past month. To single out the Fed, which is one of those factors, Jason, when and why the Fed starts cutting rates in 2024 may be the biggest factor and one most debated in the market. Why do you think that is? And what do you expect as of today? Well, I say the probably the most important last of all the different factors. That is the Fed. You know, given that the macro looks relatively benign, investors don't see a lot of near-term downside. It's also been premised on the fact that the inflation data and the cooling economy has given scope for the Fed not to not only not hike anymore, which is very, very unlikely. Uh, they're almost certainly done. But you know, the question is, like, when do they start cutting? Uh, and the market right now is pricing about a 65% chance of a cut by March. That's as of Friday's close. As of last Monday, it was at 30%. So what we had last week was a couple of Fed officials, including Fed Chair Jay Powell and also Fed Governor Christopher uh, Waller, who kind of gave speeches indicating that the Fed maybe would be looking or willing to cut interest rates if inflation keeps coming down, even if growth hasn't slowed. Um, so this is really kind of the debate in the marketplace is not just when will the Fed cut, but will they cut sort of preemptively, meaning they don't need to see real economic weakness, a labor market cracking for them to cut. But if inflation allows them, they want to sort of risk management to ensure that policy isn't getting too restrictive. And that's kind of what the market is, is now kind of pricing. Um, 
they're pricing about almost 140 basis points of cuts for next year, um, which is pretty aggressive, and there's definitely scope for disappointment in that regards. The key thing is to watch in the next <clears throat> couple of weeks are, um, you know, what does the Fed do at, at the FOMC meeting on the 13th? They almost certainly won't hike. They will update their economic projections, and, they, and the most critical thing is they will update their dot plot for the hikes they, or the cuts they expect next year. Right now, the dots show two cuts. Uh, the market's pricing for you know about five and a five and a half. So there's clearly a disconnect. Uh, if they only leave it at two cuts, so that might be viewed as a, a hawkish interpretation. Um, a key thing to watch this week is the November payrolls report. Not just for the number of jobs created, that's uh, the consensus is at 180. But what happens to the unemployment rate? It has been ticking higher. If that continues to tick higher, that certainly gives the Fed sort of scope to say, all right, the labor market is cooling, unemployment is going up, therefore we can proactively cut if inflation is allowing. So actually, an uptick to 4% unemployment might actually be read as good news even by the markets. But there is all of the overall scope I think, for investors to be a little bit disappointed by, you know, Fed. Um, you know how much is priced. It's a reason why rates have come down very quickly, very rapidly, perhaps overshot on the downside. So any sort of scope of maybe the Fed not being quite as aggressive as the market is thinking, especially if it's you know preemptively, there is scope for rates to back up at least temporarily, and that would cause a little bit of indigestion for the markets that have certainly benefited from the fall in rates over the past four to five weeks. Digging into the markets a bit deeper, Jason, within the blog, you also know that this rally is similar to the one back in the summer when the S&P 500 was up 10%. This is back in June, July timeframe. I recall we spoke a lot about that at the time, though you also know that there's also an important difference between these rallies. What is that difference and why does it matter? So I think if you just look at the S&P 500, as you said, in the month of June and July combined, the S&P was up 10%. In November, it was up 9%. And you can look at other you know, equity markets, and they were up you know, kind of comparable levels, certainly within, within the ballpark overall. Uh, and one of the common aspects of both of those two time periods is that it's when the markets went, at the start of them, from you know, thinking a soft landing isn't likely or worried about hard landing recession to those recession risks getting, you know, getting removed. And so the market's fully embracing the soft landing. But there's a really big difference between those two time periods, and that's in what happened with interest rates and therefore bond returns. Yields rose back in July and uh, June, uh, and they rose, if we look at the 10-year Treasury yield, 31 basis points, whereas they fell, the 10-year fell, 60 basis points in November. So two very different dynamics. That's why we saw uh, you know, very good, very strong you know, bond returns, like almost record-setting bond returns in November, yet they were flat to slightly down in the June-July timeframe. Now, think about why that happened. You know, the summer rally was really about pricing out the left tail. We came out of the banking crisis in March. The expectations were by the summer we'd have a recession. As the data started coming in, especially by you know, late May, then June and July time period, those recession risks receded significantly. Therefore, the left tail for growth kind of went away. That meant rates, um, you know, cuts that were being priced into the markets, those could go away as well. That allowed rates to rise. So it's really kind of, a, you know, a story of accelerating growth. At the same time, there was disinflation. Um, the November rally was kind of the opposite in that the right tail for interest rates staying higher for longer, that was being priced out. <clears throat> and the reason was that the fears of the economy, you know, overheating, inflation staying sticky, that went away as there was evidence of, you know, you know, the economy was cooling, inflation was coming down. 
Um, so what we had in November was moderating growth, still with also disinflation. So you took the right tail out there. Um, so really what we had in both situations is tail risks being removed. That was why risk assets did well, but had a very different dynamic for what it meant for interest rates um, and the you know, how bond markets you know, or the bonds did overall. Um, so that was really kind of an important difference. But the key commonality is that in both cases, tail risks have been sort of diminished or truncated by evolving macroeconomic conditions. So just to revisit the market outlook, Chase, in near term as we begin to close out, what do you expect from the markets for the next month into Q1 of 24? And what should investors be doing? Well, in some way, the biggest near-term risk for the markets could simply be that after this phenomenal one-month performance, a period of consolidation may be sort of a necessary breather. You know, there's a lot of good news are priced in. Uh, investors seeing little imminent downside risk does make markets vulnerable to even small disappointments. I think still, though, the macro conditions should be relatively benign for the time being, and that would allow the Fed to be in sort of a wait-and-see mode, and if anything, we're kind of ready to pivot towards rate cuts if the economic conditions warrant it. So under those kind of macro policy circumstances, this positive market momentum can continue in December, but also certainly into you know, the month of, of January. At that point in time, though, you know, the economic data does have to kind of continue to be benign um, if we get signs of inflation not improving or maybe more likely we start to see economic growth slowing and slowing more than investors expect, at least enough that it raises the concerns that perhaps a mild recession is back on the table, then that could cause some disruption you know, you know, in the first quarter, um, which is why ultimately I would continue to think that the framework we've had for much of this year of markets being range-bound, um, that will continue until we sort of have a condition where it's kind of we have the all clear for at least for risk assets to go higher, which is really requires the Fed to actually be cutting rates and for the other side of any sort of growth slowdown to be sort of in sight. So the markets can kind of look through that and slow down and sort of anticipate sort of the cyclical recovery on the other side. So, you know, still range bound, but what would change is the range is likely to shift higher for equities, perhaps lower for the U.S. dollar and maybe lower for rates. And the reason they can shift higher in those directions is that, as I mentioned, these tail risks of downside you know, for the growth and upside for rates, those tail risks have gone lower. So still range bound, but a more an elevated range. <clears throat> so we can see equities move higher, but higher within a new range. And if again, if the macro data doesn't sort of hold up quite as benignly as investors think, or the Fed does less than what the market's pricing, their scope for, for risk assets to kind of reverse. So with that in mind, you know, our kind of some of our key messages, you know, to continue to buy you know, quality bonds and equities, you know, remain and hold or remain, you know, the, the advice that we would give, especially things in equities where Given the rally, what we saw, some of the more key expected parts of the markets kind of rally. Quality stocks have actually lagged in the past couple of weeks, which makes it, from a relative perspective, an, an you know, attractive entry point. And bond yields are still relatively attractive, given what we think will be a slowdown in growth and inflation next year. And another key message is, is to hedge market volatility. Given how low volatility is right now, to buy that downside protection, you know, to hedge whether you're using puts or structured instruments and products, um, it's a pretty opportune time to do that right now. So certainly also, well, investors you know, might be a little bit complacent about near-term risk. That's often the best time to be buying that insurance because inevitably there'll be some sort of hiccups in this rally at some point. Probably not, though, until Q1. 
Well, Jason, thank you for dropping by top of the morning today to help us make sense of this recent market rally, where markets might go from here, and of course, some guidance around how to think about positioning. So this as we continue to count down to 2024. Thank you again for your insights today, Jason. We look forward to picking back up the conversation with you in the week ahead. Have a great week. Thank you, Jason. Again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Again, I do want to highlight Jason's most recent blog, which we have been making reference to during our conversation today, that title being Making a List. The blog is now available up on UBS.com slash CIO, though for clients of UBS, simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Van Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.